Welcome to the Sustainability Research Pod, a podcast where you hear about applied research into education and sustainability. This podcast is brought to you by members of the Sustainability Research Group hosted at London Southbank University. This episode is taken from the Sustainability and Climate Action Conference hosted at London Southbank University in January 2021. This episode is titled, Can We Achieve 17 Sustainable Development Goals Simultaneously? Panelists include Safia Barikse, Associate Professor of Informatics, Claire Benson, Senior Lecturer in Chemical Engineering, myself, Jay Gajparia, Senior Lecturer in Sociology, Liz Newton, Associate Professor of Psychology. Okay, so um, thank you very much for joining us, everybody. Um, We have a very esteemed panel of experts. Um, We're each going to introduce ourselves. Um, As Neil said, my name is Deborah Andrews. I'm Associate Professor of Design in the School of Engineering. And I, my real um, sort of passion and focus is sustainability, sustainable design and manufacture. And I lead a huge European project called SADASI, which is developing a circular economy for data centers at the moment. So over to my next colleague, Safia. Uh, hi, my name is Safia Barak. I'm an associate professor in the division of computer science at LSBU. So um, my um, interests lie in computer science education, helping young children to become more um, digitally savvy and literate. And at the same time, uh, I've um, led on a large European project to support SMEs in London to help them um, access to talent. Um, so that's who I am. Thank you. And um, Claire? Uh, hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Dr. Claire Benson. I'm a fire and explosion scientist working in chemical and energy engineering at London South Bank University. I'm curator of the LSBU 100 Women in Engineering program, and I'm a research lead on the EC Enable H2 project, uh, looking at hydrogen aircraft and their safety. Uh, Liz? Hi, I'm Liz Newton. I'm an associate professor in psychology at LSBU. I'm interested in a lot of things, but I do have an interest in sustainability, and I've done a number of projects with Deborah looking at how we can encourage people to be more sustainable. And last but not least, Jaya. Hi, I'm Dr. Jaya Gajparia, and I'm a Senior Lecturer in Sociology and Course Director of Education for Sustainability. Um, I'm also the Co-Chair of the Sustainability Research Group and uh, the Co-Chair of um, the Domestic Abuse in COVID-19. So my interests lie in the intersections of of gender, race and sustainability. I am also... um, very much interested in education for sustainable development as well. Now, just before we begin, I have some issues with tech. So I've got two things going on, which is why I, my video doesn't work on this temporary laptop. So this is why it looks the way it looks. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So, yeah. Well, thank you for uh, being here in, uh, in full Technicolor and in sound drive. That's, uh, that's good. So, um, yeah, we're really pleased that we've uh, sort of pulled together a um, a, a very uh, multidisciplinary uh, team of experts to talk about this subject. But before we go ahead um, to talk about 17 SDGs, I'd just like to um, invite uh, Dr. Claire Benson to tell us a little bit more about Women in Engineering 100, 
as um, this event, our session really is a sort of collaborative celebration of that and um, sustainable development. So, Claire, please. Thank you very much, Deborah. I'll just try and. Uh, so, yes, thanks very much to Deborah, to Neil, and all of the organizers of the uh, Sustainability and Climate Action Series. Uh, thanks for inviting LSBU 100 Women in Engineering to join with you this week. They said Avengers Infinity War was the most ambitious crossover event in history, and they didn't see us coming. So, yeah. uh, as I said before, my name is Claire Benson. I'm a fire and explosion scientist, and I'm curating the LSBU 100 Women in Engineering program. Uh, this project really started with a pretty small idea. Let's find a way to celebrate 100 years of teaching women engineering at London South Bank University. But when we started looking at LSBU's groundbreaking history on the education of women, the current work of our engineers and at issues in the engineering world beyond LSBU, well, we realized our program could do so much more. Over the past year, LSBU history and archives staff and students have been exploring our history and the alumni from the last hundred years. They've been releasing biographies of the fascinating women who've been part of our institution. Now that starts with Ida Bold, who in 1920 studied technical drawing, achieving higher marks than all of the 69 men on the same course. We've explored the targeted uh, engineering courses like Simplified Engineering Course for Women, done with the Women's Engineering Society, and Electricity in the Home, both in the 1930s, through to looking at electronic engineering and the creation of the Women's Engineering Centre in the 1980s. All of this information has been put onto our interactive LSBU Women in Engineering online timeline. And I'll have the link at the end there if you want to go and see it. We've also already had some wonderful events involving staff, alumni, students, and guests from academia and business. We've looked at the history and role of women in engineering, the important work of black and minority ethnic female engineers, and the incredible future shaping research being done by women today. Those events are all available to watch on our LSBU YouTube channel, so please do go and take a look if you're interested. Now, for those of you who might not be familiar with it, engineering is, in its essence, made of three things at the start for me. Some sort of science knowledge, a problem we've identified that needs a solution, and some understanding of the money issues. Now, you don't necessarily need all of those things in one person. It can be a team of people. And in fact, it usually is. But engineering starts when we put all of those things together. Engineers apply scientific knowledge to the problem and produce a solution and not just a solution on paper or on a bench top, but a solution that works for everyone in the real world, or at least it's meant to. Because engineering is about problem solving in the real world, it really does touch almost every part of our lives. Our events have featured speakers from diverse areas like civil engineering and architecture, tech and computer sciences, chemical, fire and refrigeration engineering, materials engineering, and of course, energy engineering and sustainability. We've had speakers who've moved across to other areas of science, like health and biotech, but find their engineering skills a hugely valuable addition for them and their teams. In fact, engineering is so much a part of the world around us. An easier question than this one, what does engineering do, is what doesn't engineering do? Despite all of the different areas that our speakers work in, I think there's been a common perspective among them in that 
all of the women who spoke think they have a lot to offer, not just to the world of engineering, but to the world at large. They have the will and the expertise to solve global challenges like those dealt with in the UN Sustainable Development Goals. The sad thing is that while professional areas like law and medicine have gone from a small minority of women to having around 50% of their practitioners as women, engineering hasn't managed to have the same appeal. In almost all STEM subjects, girls in schools get better grades than boys at A-level, but relatively few girls consider engineering as a job. Now, talking to our guests, it was clear that not only do many feel they have the knowledge of science and problem-solving skills that are useful, but also they offer an alternative perspective to the norm. We have to understand that in the UK, only 12% of engineers are women, and because of that, women aren't well represented in engineering decision-making. And that means we miss opportunities to make things better. Women can add an important angle to inform other engineers on the impact they may be missing. Engineers are problem solvers, but women engineers will have knowledge of issues and solutions others may have overlooked. In her last book, Carolina Creative Perez described how a town in Sweden looked at the gender impact of its policies. Someone at the time joked, at least snow clearing isn't something the gender people, uh, sorry, is something the gender people will keep out of. Well, challenge accepted, thought somebody else, and they looked at snow clearing. And when they did, they realized that the snowplow routes prioritized mail routes, in other words, the major roads and highways for direct point-to-point -point journeys, leaving the clearing of local routes and pavements more used by women in smaller trips and chains until much later. The town decided to try it the other way around, and when they did, firstly, they didn't find a significant detriment to drivers. Unsurprisingly, Sweden is well set up for driving in the cold. But the town did save money because fewer people went to hospital with injuries from falling on the ice and snow. There were hidden benefits they'd never considered while prioritizing the male experience as a default. Now, in order to solve the world's difficulties and challenges and to meet sustainability goals so that solutions work for everyone, everyone needs to be represented and part of the solution. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much for that, Claire. Slightly embarrassing, but uh, yeah, I think it really, um, you've highlighted some of the points that we're going to discuss in further depth this afternoon. So thank you very much for that introduction. And I'm very quickly going to, I hope, share my screen too uh, with luck. So um, yes, the, the title of our session is Can We Achieve 17 Sustainable Goals Simultaneously and Celebrating Sustainability and 100 Years of Women in Engineering at LSBU. Um, we have introduced ourselves. You can see we're a very diverse team. And um, without further ado, um, we will now consider the challenge of meeting 17 different sustainable development goals um, we can see, um, for those of you who are unfamiliar with these, they were put together um, on the back of the Millennium Development Goals, which were launched around about 2000. Um, and these 17 SDGs um, were launched in 2015, and we hope to realise them by 2030. But they're quite, well, incredibly broad ranging. We're looking at uh, economic aspects such as no poverty, etc. Um, access to education, gender equality, sustainable consumption, production, um, better water, climate action, and so forth. So they are really global issues. Some are um, global in, in sort of scale, for instance, climate um, action, and some are more localized, for instance, thinking about um, uh, 
uh, quality education, which could be in a local school or whatever. So one of the challenges that has certainly come to light, and um, I've been working with uh, students, design and engineering students, considering how designers can um, help to implement and realise these goals. One of the things that sort of come to light is that sometimes there appears to be a conflict between one goal and another. So, for example, um, if we're thinking about um, employment and generating income and um, reducing poverty, how can that sit comfortably with um, concern about responsible consumption and production? And that's one of the things that we are going to consider this afternoon as we move on now to um, talk about um, or, uh, for our panel discussion. But before we move on to um, the discussion, we have a poll, Neil, I think. Okay. Um, yes, we'd be re really, really happy if you would please um, complete this so that um, we can get some ideas of your thoughts about um, the, the subject that we're going to discuss. Um, saying whether you're male or female is important um, for this case. It's not nosiness, it's relevant. And um, do you think it's better to tackle all 17 sustainable development goals separately or simultaneously? So if you, um, audience members, if you could please um, join the poll, we'd be really uh, grateful. So that will inform our discussion a little bit. Well, now, isn't that interesting? Uh, we have considerably more, well, let's, let's assume that the majority of audience members um, answered the poll considerably more women and a very definite um, response that the goals should be addressed simultaneously. Okay, that's very useful. Thank you very much. Okay, so um, we will now move on to our panel discussion. And um, one of the things that, um, one of the benefits about bringing um, people from different disciplines together, of course, is that we have um, different uh, expertise, but also possibly different experience um, to uh, enrich our conversation. And um, something that we were discussing last week was the um, role of nature in um, informing things like decision making and behaviour, um, and to, in particular problem solving. So um, Liz, as a psychologist, would be very interested to know whether um, and to what extent biology, physiology or neuroscience uh, influences differences or similarities and approaches to problem solving, um, particularly in relation to SDGs, for example. Right, well, that's, that's such a huge topic. You could probably do a degree or even a PhD on it. But one of the things that came out from our discussions was that there's very much women are underrepresented as leaders for climate change, for sustainability, for changing goals. And so I looked from a psychology perspective as of why this is. Um, and I found that repeated uh, surveys have found that women report many more pro-environmental uh, beliefs and actions, but they are very rarely in the leadership role. So they're not making the decisions. So we wanted to look at why that might be. So I looked at gender differences in leadership and we found that women report lower motivation to become leaders. So therefore they're less likely to, to want to become a leader. 
But then when those that do want to become leaders, we have this problem of a self-fulfilling prophecy that we bring up girls to be little girls and boys to be boys. And because people will tend to have their beliefs influence their actions. So if a little girl is brought up to believe she's nurturing and should be in the background supporting, then she will end up doing that. So to tackle these problems, we need to start right at, at day one at birth and, and try and stop this. Um, and the other thing that I found when I was doing some research in this area was that the language we use is very, very different. And just as an example, I, I found a very, very large sample, a, a survey using a data set that had over 4,000 participants. And they asked people to rate leadership and people's ability. And they found that the, the most commonly, uh, used, most frequently used positive term for men was analytical and compassionate for women. And for negative terms, men were more likely to be described as arrogant and women as inept. And I think what you can take from that is this underlying belief that women are less capable of being leaders. And so that's this self-fulfilling prophecy. And so we have to really start looking at the language we use. Okay, so um, that's um, sort of thinking about nature, but what, what about, and, and I suppose nature is, um, I mean, in terms of brain function and so forth, how did you find any differences there, Liz? What? Um, well, in neuropsychology, it's not my area in neuropsychology, so I haven't really looked very much at this idea of, of actually getting at a neuronal level. But of course, it's our, our neurons is part of who we are. So it, it's something that could be changed more easily. If it was actually brain structure, it would be harder to change. I think yeah. if, if it's driven by beliefs, it's going to be easier to change. So then thinking about beliefs and so forth, Jaya, you're a social scientist and work very much in this area, the sort of culture around um, belief systems, behaviours, et cetera. So, um, you know, um, do you think that um, that um, these uh, sort of, or that the uh, cultural differences, are they perpetuated through life? When do they begin? Um, and so forth. And yeah, I think, them. yeah, I, I, do you hear echo? Is everything okay? It's okay. Okay. Um, yes, I think culture does play a very big role in how we approach problems. Um, so much of it is about who is making decisions, as we've already said, who gets to be seen, whose voices have impact. From a gender and race perspective, what we know is there, there are great disparities from boardroom decision making to addressing the gender pay gap across sectors. So what I really want to just um, pick on here is um, the Fawcett Society is a charity organisation that campaigns for gender equality and they published a report in 2019 on gender stereotyping in early childhood from ages of zero to seven. Um, it's important we emphasise the impact of formative years socialization um, on the gender discrimination of opportunities and how these early experiences are then perpetuated in adulthood and it's and it's picking on precisely what Liz and Claire have already said actually so quoting three findings from this report to illustrate this point um, seven out of ten younger women were affected by stereotyping and said 
their career choices were restricted. Number two, uh, parents inadvertently reinforce gender stereotyping through uh, choices of toys, play, language, and language or something that Liz, you touched on. And, and I would also add um, clothing as well to this. And number three, as early as six years old, now this is quite a frightening um, uh, piece of research uh, or fact that um, early as six years old, children associate intelligence with being male and niceness with being female. So let's look at you know, representations of gender in children's books, for instance. Um, the classic Thomas the Tank Engine book that is gendered, all the locomotives are male, there is also a lack of diversity in terms of race, and as a result, it's uncommon for girls to be gifted this book or choose it for themselves because they are not represented in them. And, uh, you know, and, and, it, and it makes this question, can girls not love trains, planes, buses and trucks? And yet overall girls do better, as, as Clara has also um, said, that they do better at STEM subjects than boys. Um, and there has been some progress in the world of engineering. Um, women in engineering are pioneering female-only networks and pulling the ladder down, but we need to demand, I think, greater change in the messages we give children and instead children should be able to decide for themselves what interests them and the responsibility to correct these gender imbalances should not solely be the responsibility of women and girls right like through these networks and us challenging the systems boys and men have a role to play too and they need to be able to see women in positions of decision-making power from an early age. Um, and, and, and that really does need to happen quite quickly. They need to see women in, in the industries um, and they also need to demand a massive shift in how these organizations are run. Women make up half of the human population and our experiences of the world are different to that of men, which is why it's important to harness these experiences um, uh, when designing the future of the physical and digital world. And finally, we cannot, I believe, build a more sustainable world without women. It's not possible. And, and I think it goes against the fundamental idea of sustainability. Okay, so um, just thinking then, um, Claire, as a, um, an engineering educator, do you see um, these sort of gender differences, um, are, are they embodied or inherent within general engineering, education and profession? Um, are there other factors that could be uh, sort of influencing approach to SDG, uh, realising all 17 SDGs, etc.? Are they re reflected in engineering education in any way? It's interesting, actually, I, I've been thinking about this the last few days and and what I started to realize was actually similar to, to what Jai was saying in, in terms of role models. When I was growing up, most of the engineers who were shown were um, sort of Victorian white men um, and generally civil and mechanical engineers, actually. That, that tends to be the sorts of engineering that we're talking about, increasingly computer engineering. Um, but but it, was, it was sort of all this idea of this, this one great person who, who made engineering what it is and and what strikes me as strange is in that early uh, years education that that nobody really told me what engineering was i think i barely knew it existed 
And nobody really told me and framed it the way I did earlier, which is it's a collaborative effort of multiple different disciplines coming together to solve these big problems. And, and so we actually silo children quite early. The, the way we teach education has to be taught around subjects. I kind of get that. But in terms of engineering, we don't really represent it well because you can't really fit it into biology, chemistry and physics because it involves all of those things. Engineering is now being taught as a subject in itself, which is great. Um, but we, we do have a way of sort of pinholing people and, and not showing the, the opportunity that exists beyond that in engineering. Um, I, I was thinking earlier that, that I was really good at maths at school, but I didn't take the A-level. And the reason I didn't take the A-level is because I thought that I would have two jobs available to me, accountant or maths teacher, neither of which I wanted to be. No one told me I could work at GCHQ. No, I had no idea that was that was an opportunity. Um, but in terms of the way then women and men are handling the education, it's very difficult to get away from that that train of thought. There's only one image of engineering being presented. So um, okay, so um, that it, yeah, it's um, I think. Most or well, many subjects suffer from a kind of siloed approach. You're either mechanical or electrical or you know whatever, um, and that's obviously going to be quite contrary to um, the means of uh, addressing the SDGs. Um, but I just wonder, um, Safia, because I know that you have worked a lot and and still are working in. Um, uh, outreach projects with uh, pre-university level students in some of um, the local academies and so forth. Um, and um, both Liz and, and uh, Jai have already said that sort of cultural differentiation starts very young, um, almost, well, in the cradle in some instances, but certainly through um, school and so forth. But um, you as a, um, an educator, and in this case, a computer scientist who've got slightly different background to Blair, for example, and to me. Um, how do you think that um, these challenges or could be addressed and how have you been addressing them? And um, what, um, you know, what sort of potential is there if we can address this sort of silo mentality and, and so forth and gender bias. Um, thank you, Deborah. So um, there's a quite a number of um, areas to untangle and to kind of um, address. So firstly, I'm going to ask um, panelists and the audience, if you can think back to when you were seven years old, and I know Jaya mentioned uh, age of seven and so did Claire, and, and we know it starts at, age of, um, at an early age, these biases or the stereotypes. Think back to when you were a seven year old. And if I asked you, can you draw me, and you could be an imaginary drawing of what an engineer looks like to you as a seven-year-old, okay? And imagine that, and can you, using the chat facility, put it in the chat, what was your imaginary, in your imagination as a seven-year-old, what an engineer looked like? Because for me, it was definitely male. An older male, thick glasses, don't ask me why, but curly hair. That was my imagination. I don't know where I got the hair um, piece from, but that was my imagination. Now, if you ask me, 
what a 17-year-old Safia thought an engineer looked like, it was a white male, because by then, as a refugee from Afghanistan, I'd moved to the UK and I'd become more aware of the, um, the, um, the ethnicity barrier, not just the gender barrier. So to me, as a 17-year-old, it was always going to be an engineer or a scientist was someone who was white and male, right? So that was very real. That, that I think, it's, it's something. And thank you for everyone who's putting their um, thoughts in the chat. So what we are doing at LSBU, I've been leading on a large European-funded project to work with young people across London it's, uh, uh, and several other European countries to teach young people the concept of programming, the concept of coding, but using sustainable development goals as the context to solve the problem. But the Inventors Project was a large European funded project. So we use playful coding and storytelling, digital storytelling, as a way to engage young people who were either recent migrants or um, people who uh, were socially excluded for whatever reason. And so we looked with these, we worked with the disadvantaged kids. So I'm going to show you my, my buddy. This is a, a Lego robot. Uh, and this is a, a Lego robot in the shape of, I mean, the robot is bigger than the computer sc uh, the, the, the screen, but I'm not sure if you can see it. So this is what we, we do. We do Lego robotics with young kids. And you can actually, using Lego, pretty much teach any uh, aspect of engineering in a fun, creative way, uh, getting children to, to solve a, a problem. Okay, so if it's if if you are if you are getting the, if the problem is uh, is about um, how do we um, make self uh, sustainable self driving cars, okay, with Lego they can. Here's another model. I'm, I'm Lego obsessed, by the way. As a child, I didn't have any, uh, and now I'm at my age. I'm quickly obsessed. So they can make these. They could program these. They could solve. A mechanical engineer would would. would a student who is interested in mechanical engineering will look at the gear ratios, okay? A design engineer would look at the aesthetics and the functionality. Computer science would look at the programmability of the robot. So we engage children in a meaningful um, 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 uh, problem and then get them to creatively solve it in a fun and engaging way where gender is not an issue. You know, when you are look, looking at the problem, your gender is it's, it, it's not you're a boy or a girl, you go into this team because you're a girl or a boy, but it, it becomes irrelevant. So, and we do it at LSBU, we do it through uh, taking our students who are from diverse backgrounds, our engineering STEM students, and they become role models to the younger ki kids. And as role models, the children can see, yes, she can be there. She is studying mechanical engineering. He is from the same background as me. He is doing design engineering. And that makes it really powerful as a conversation enabler. But that's something that we are doing. And I think role model is really important. Mentorship is really powerful and providing access to pathways because there isn't one route into engineering as Claire mentioned, and there isn't the one interest in engineering. You can change your field to, to like Matt, it's not just two disciplines that you can two career paths that you could go into. I think we as a university are doing really well in, in trying to encourage the young generation to kind of demystify the, the world of engineering. Um, that's interesting. I mean, you mentioned meaningfulness as well. 
because um, I think something that we've talked about quite a bit is um, is finding uh, relevance and meaningfulness in language and context too. And um, again, you know, the sort of come back to the Thomas the Tank Engine scenario. Yes, girls should, could, are interested in trains and so forth. But um, I think it's also uh, very important to find um, language and scenarios and contexts that aren't um, male focused or male dominated. They could be, you know, more relevant to um, women and um, female students, for example. So um, that's really, yeah. Um, so Claire, in, um, so thinking about, again, about younger students, um, do you, how do you, again, because you're engaged in outreach, engaged in outreach projects, how do you encourage them to think holistically and to find meaning and uh, resonance, cultural resonance? Uh, well, actually, I think, um, I mean, I've worked on a programme with Safia, which we worked on together to um, try and teach children fire safety. And um, what I did was the, the sort of the first sections were teaching them the, the basics of why things burn, how things burn differently. And then we would either take them to the lab and show them how things burn, or we'd actually get them to go and do a fire safety assessment on an environment that we primed. And we'd ask them to look at that environment and apply the science, understand why you would get fire spread and to spot it in the real world. And actually, it's surprisingly easy when you explain it just like that. You say, here's um, some science, here's a problem, now go do it in the real world. And, and, and kids are great at doing that. And actually, I think they're far better at doing that than perhaps some of the engineering students I, I, I see at a higher level. And I was wondering actually if, if some of that is down to, again, this, this siloed issue. We concentrate very heavily early on on the, the straight science, the straight uh, mathematics um, of engineering. I'm not saying they aren't important, immensely important to be able to justify what we do with, with good scientific understanding of mathematics. But it isn't all of engineering. I mean, you, you know, Deborah, you, you work in this and, and so much of what you do is looking holistically and wider at, at context. It's context. It's looking at a, a whole bunch of different things that have to come together in the real world. And in something like fire safety, it's really simple when I'm looking at a bench top and I'm burning a material and looking at the output. Um, it's really hard when you start looking at how people will use that information or apply that information. I mean, just recently looking around the issues with the, the differences of how people looked at the building regulations and how they were used and applied. When things get into the real world, it gets far more complicated and you have to be able to look at things in a much more varied way and not a singular way. And actually, as, as Safia is saying, that the kids can be amazing at doing that. They really can have this incredible problem-solving ability and imagination in a way that that sometimes I think we're, we're in danger of losing as we get older. Yeah, I think that's certainly true in design field as well. You know, that there's sort of there's becomes a, almost a, a sort of panic around lateral thinking and um, so forth um, as but, education progresses. And it's like a, an ex-time where children are very open and then they get their creativity sort of gets squeezed somewhere. And when they come to university, we have to kind of try and open them out again. Um, yeah. But, then, can I just add that there is something called functional fixedness and you find that very young children have got very fluid thinking about anything, but as they get yeah. older, 
things have a specific purpose and it's adults find it very hard to think outside that box so that's the what you're touching on there yeah yeah so is that do you think that's um nature or nurture or a bit of both liz oh well the nature nurture debate is less interesting in psychology because we think everything is a bit of both i okay. mean most intelligent child in the world but if you're not fed you're not going to display it okay okay Thanks. children have an innate ability to have a really broad perspective that just gets more and more narrowed and that's narrowed by people's attitudes towards children the way they're interacted with so that comes back to what Jai is saying as well yeah that, well actually my next question is to Jai anyway and it sort of picks up on this. Um, and that um, you said previously that obviously 50% of the population is female. Um, and uh, there are there's a lot of um, sort of evidence that design and engineering aren't necessarily meeting everybody's needs. Um, the, I thought the, um, the, the um, story of um, engineering in Sweden and the, the road clearing is a very good example of that. Um, but thinking about um, if we, if you know, we can wave a magic wand or whatever um, and make design and engineering more inclusive, um, how would that benefit uh, solving the SDGs? And in other words, what changes in curricula and culture will benefit girls and women or society as a whole? Well, I think I think it's going to benefit everybody, isn't it? Um, when when you have uh, uh, inclusivity, you get better results. Um, and, and I just want to pause for a second and just say two things. And that is just in relation to the last points is that Safia talked about play and, and play in adulthood, I think is so important because it gets us back to that time when children are young, right? Where they're creative and they're open. And the other thing that Safia had, which I noticed is she just drank from a mug that said, I am a learner or I'm still learning. And I think that is equally important. <laughs> so I just want to kind of touch on those two things. So um, <laughs> the exclusion of, I think, women in design and engineering leads to a world that is biased against women. And we've already mentioned that. And I want to just pick up on a, a point that Claire uh, started off with, and she referenced the work of Caroline uh, Criado Perez and her book, Invisible Women. Um, in this book, she illustrates um, and highlights the vast design failures, right, that have led uh, to a world built to, to advantage men. So she provides examples as uh, the Swedish example, as, as Claire uh, um, already spoke about, and also how women and other minority communities have been excluded. And, and it's it being excluded not just from you know, um, uh, engineering, transport technology, but also, you know, government policy, health, medicine, it's the whole lot. So creating inclusive design increases the opportunities to design safe and resilient and sustainable societies and relates to many of the 17 sustainable development goals. Um, and I also think using um, the feminist lens of intersectionality is particularly important. You know, race, ethnicity, gender and disability, it's crucial that we use this. Um, and we have already touched upon this and mentioned it, um, Safia talked about it. 
and, and recognizing the impact of early gendered socialization, something I've already, we've already been talking about, we've, we've mentioned a number of times, but I think is important. But also there needs to be some kind of accountability mechanism, I think. So, you know, where girls are outperforming boys in STEM and in school and, and at A-levels, but then somewhere there's a massive gap in, um, in, in, in harnessing that talent when it comes to university places and, and taking up um, uh, jobs uh, in STEM industries, you know, and, and we can harness these, this talent in redesigning a more socially, economically, politically sustainable world. So I think that we need to kind of focus a little bit on accountability and, and where that lies and uh, in, in terms of the failures to to bridge that gap between, you know, at primary and secondary education, where girls are doing really well, and then onwards into higher education, and then in and career and leadership as well. Like why aren't women staying in leadership roles across the board, but particularly engineering and and design? Okay, um, just thinking about that then um, as a um, engineering as an enabler and, and perhaps things that were designed for one purpose but have been creatively adapted to another. Um, Safia, um, would, could you just briefly talk um, perhaps an example of how technology is an, an enabler of change in an inclusive way? Um, absolutely. So um, my background is technology and I see that technology can most certainly act as an enabler in addressing all 17 SDGs and not necessarily in silos. And women have, have a huge role to play um, um, in, in making that um, uh, 17 goals a reality. Uh, one of the things that I came across, a colleague mentioned um, a couple of weeks ago in one of our research away days that women in the music industry had struggled to um, make a name for themselves. So because it's a heavily male dominated field However, they use technology in innovative ways to actually break those barriers and to actually um, make progress for themselves happen. So that technology, the use of technology was certainly an, an enabler. However, um, I think improving access to technology and increasing digital literacy uh, needs to go a long way before that can become a reality. So I think technology definitely has a huge role to play. So I'm originally from Afghanistan. My mum the reason why I went and chose STEM as a subject was my mom was a medical doctor, probably one of the first cohort of female doctors in Afghanistan. Now, Afghanistan is fairly remote uh, and access to healthcare for women is quite um, significantly poor. And I've been thinking about how technology can help say Af women in Afghanistan. One, uh, and, and many of the SDGs uh, touch on quality education, health or um, e equality. Um, technology can, um, you know, support women in rural areas so that the infant mortality rate in Afghanistan is one of the highest in the world. It can help women understand better their childcare needs, uh, healthcare provision, so you don't have doctors everywhere, therefore you can actually use technology as an enabler. However, uh, technology uh, is, is no good if there's no digital literacy to go with it. People don't, or, or they're not technically uh, digitally literate. 
That's a real issue. That digital literacy is a real problem in London. There is community of migrants who are in London that, or, uh, or, or uh, various different um, communities, not just migrant communities, but people who have real issue accessing technology or accessing uh, um, information online. Then there is also the in inequality that, that this whole COVID uh, and remote schooling has, has brought this, this new, uh, the world, you know, our attention to the fact that children do not have access to laptops. I've been thinking about this a lot because since our, uh, since we, we as a group had a meeting and since then I've been thinking about remote learners. COVID and the inequality means that people, young, young learners are, are disadvantaged because of that. And I think we need, we need to kind of say to ourselves, what will we do as a pledge to increase digital literacy within our communities and also lobby um, such that everyone has equitable access to these technologies because otherwise technology is an enabler but if half of the population don't have access to it it's no good to us so i would like us to kind of make a pledge whatever your pledge is what will you do to make that difference that's a yeah that's pretty heavy hitting safia um it's a big question but okay um so Bearing in mind, Liz, coming back again to this sort of um, more uh, psychologist approach. So I think we've highlighted a few things um, that um, the way in which children are brought up from, well, from the cradle, really, through schooling and so forth, and then into higher education, this sort of um, continuing or gradual um, increasing silo, siloization, if that's a, a word, compartmentalization of subjects and learning um, seems very contrary to um, the, the necessity or as our audience said that, you know, we need to tackle SDGs simultaneously. And if we are, the education system and, and so forth is um, countering that, um, we've got um, quite a challenge. But um, Liz, just thinking, um, do you, and, and one of the other things that's come up, obviously, is leadership as well. How um, we the, the the sort of um, structure of uh, well, engineering and design, manufacture, whatever it is, so many structures are, um, are male dominated and and don't serve the needs of society um, as a whole. It's the structures are not inclusive, but. Considering those two factors, can you, do you have any sort of glimmers of hope for us? Do you think um, that change can uh, happen? And that it can. The SDGs. Can. I mean, I think one of the things that would be a really good thing would be to change the way we educate and to stop seeing subjects as sort of compartmentalized subjects and rather just teach a more holistic way because otherwise you get um, students who think, well, you know, physics could solve that, but I'm in chemistry at the moment, so I can't bring my physics knowledge to bear. And so I think having a more holistic and integrated approach is a way of really trying to tackle these problems simultaneously, teaching simultaneous thought. And what, what, about, um, what about things like um, critical mass, groundswell? You know, if, if we have a, a system 
that is uh, that doesn't promote that how, how do you think we could change critical mass is very difficult to to get but if we can start at the bottom and get children you know right from an early age thinking it's perfectly okay for them to do whatever they want and that could be you know from an opposite way girls can be engineers and boys can be cooks or whatever you know just to really start that you get a generational change then because yeah. it's this intrinsic beliefs that are held by people that cause this um, self-fulfilling prophecy so we've got a generation or generations of people who believe one thing we need to change the intrinsic beliefs of the next generation but we've only got until 2030 to um, meet the SDGs. So then we've um, got to work extra. I open this question to the floor. Um, any brilliant ideas about how we might do this? And um, we've also, I think we keep seeing things popping up in chat. Um, we weren't going to have a Q&A. We've got about um, five or six minutes for that, maybe. Um, I, well, uh, should we open this question? to everybody in the panel and also possibly to people on the in the audience as well if we if um liz is um saying that um we've got a generation or we need you know it'll be long-term um problem solving um or bringing about generational change but um actually we've got until 2030 to realize the sdgs so can we be optimistic or not about this and and can we realize them simultaneously Anybody got any quick fix proposals? I, I don't have a quick fix proposal, if I may. I mean, the panel is, uh, there is a question in, in the chat, uh, sorry, in the Q&A, about uh, um, saying anything about poverty and global change and the effect on women and young girls, right? Is, yeah, is, is, I can see that now, yes. Um, if I can say, um, I mean, Sam's asked that question. Um, we, we can all, I think we, rather than say what is, um, what is the world doing about it, what is the government doing about it, what is the university doing about it, we should say what am I doing about it? Because if we, each one of us, take it on ourselves to say what can I do, what is within my reach, and you make a difference, that encourages other people, uh, others, to take, uh, take your lead and also do something. And then together we could lobby the university, the government, and make a global change. I think um, let's get together and, and say what talents and what skill sets we have. We have, as a university, we are very diverse. We've got a huge amount of talent within us. What can we do to make a difference? Because if we wait for someone um, higher up in the chain to, to make it happen, it may be too late because I want in 10 years time to ask a group of seven-year-olds what does an engineer look like? And I want them to say it's it's female, it's it or it's a, a or let's not think male female because it could be you don't have to define people as male or female, right? Whatever pronouns people we should people should be aware of the pro, different pronouns, right? And to, to say that it's 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 of different ethnic background. A, dis, the, a disabled person can be an engineer as well. To be able to to, to picture that. I think it, the change has to come from us. Yeah, I, I agree um, with that. I mean, we're, we're part of the problem, but we're part of the solution, and that applies to absolutely everybody. 
um, yeah, Joya. Yeah, I, I would like to add to that. I think, Safi, you're absolutely right. I think there's um, individual accountability. And mm -hmm. I think I keep coming back to accountability throughout this whole uh, conference, actually, since yesterday. And I think we, we need to hold, and I think it's easier to do this, which is hold companies and organizations to account around accountability, because now we have a platform such as social media where there are no gatekeepers and we can speak directly to people mm. and this allows for us to have profound change and we've seen that in for instance the me too movement you know it, that that galvanized such a massive conversation that that change just just almost happened or is happening overnight you know and and i think that there is an opportunity there will we do it in nine years or 10 years, um, you know, to, to meet the, the, the goals uh, and the deadline. I'm not sure, but I do believe that there are opportunities and I, at the moment, sit on the optimistic side of the fence. Well, that's good. Yeah, I think from my experience, if I'm working with students and um, encouraging them to think about um, how, what SDGs their projects can address, you know, and they're tackling very quite some quite complex and some quite simple design briefs you know we always um now started asking them to think about um sdgs um and and you know the the beneficial aspects of the work that they're doing and i hope that um as they progress to um employment and bearing in mind that they're going to be graduating in sort of one two three years hopefully they'll take that practice so that you know we will be starting to initiate change um, and I'm very uh, conscious now that it is, we've got three minutes left. We're going I, to I do have oh, one, oh, yeah. Sorry, Claire. I mean, yes, one really quick point, which is to come back to the, yeah. the sort of the third part of engineering, uh, which is the money. And uh, I saw an amazing lecture a few years ago by um, Brian of Scotland, who was talking about domestic abuse and how she managed to get real change in terms of the government doing something about it. And she and uh, a whole bunch of people brought together the figures of how much it was costing the economy. And as much as we want to have these great ideals and great beliefs, the money is the third prong of that. And you have to have an understanding of, of how it's affecting it, yeah. everything around us. And it is affecting yeah. everything around us. And, and, and sustainability can bring benefits to us all. And they should be economic, too. Yeah. I, can I add one last thing? Oh, yeah. Sorry, Liz. Just yeah. because something's difficult and looks unattainable doesn't mean you shouldn't try. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's a, a very good note to finish on. Plus, of course, sustainability, the three tenets are environment, social factors and economics. There is no point in designing the most environmentally friendly product in the world if it's, you know, very affordable, but it's manufactured by um, children, you know, working in uh, sort of slave conditions or conversely, you design something that is has a very low environmental impact. It's made from very ethically sourced materials in very good working conditions, but so expensive that nobody can afford to buy it. So I think we've got to balance these things. And I think that the last point is um, that just, um, you know, the fact that we're able to sit here and discuss this, um, hopefully is, um, you know, encouraging other people. And we definitely need to get more uh, women into positions of leadership. So um, that not to become, um, sort of pretend men, 
but you know to lead in different ways and to bring different value sets and um, to help to initiate change and um, that in conjunction with the fact that we are educating young people about SDGs and getting them to consider them as part of their normal um, practice um, hopefully we will be able to realize the 17 some uh, sustainable development goals simultaneously and it's now uh, quarter past four so I'd just like to really really thank Safia and Claire and Liz and Jaya and um, Neil for hosting this um, and um, well thank you very much and I'm sorry we didn't have time to answer any more questions but being very um, vocal women we could have sat here until 10 o'clock <laughs> and just scratched the surface of this subject so thank you very much Neil. Thank, Thank you. you. And there's some comments in the chat box, you know, people kind of like, um, you know, lots of agreeing with you, um, sharing information to kind of, so there's lots of people that would would join in in those conversations. And it's definitely, it's a lot to fit in an hour. And I think there's definitely scope for another event off the back of this topic alone. Um, so I look forward to working with all of you on that soon, hopefully. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Sustainability Research Pod. This is one of a series of podcasts where members of the Sustainability Research Group hosted at London South Bank University share their work and work with others in the sustainability field. Please share and subscribe to wherever you find your podcast to automatically receive more episodes.